Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. And our big idea this week could hardly be bigger. We're talking about the universe, or rather, about how human beings have struggled to understand the physical universe and our place in it. To the earliest humans, as to us, the sky must have presented both a spectacle and an enigma. What were the sun and moon and stars? Why and how did they move about the sky? And what did they mean? Probably every culture has its cosmology, a theory about the origins and nature of the universe. Because it seemed obvious that these celestial bodies must move in obedience to a supernatural power that also governed human life, it became important to the ancients to develop instruments to observe and measure and predict these movements. The beginnings of both science and religion are in the stories people told to account for the mysteries of the observable universe. One such story, of course, is to be found on the first page of the Bible, another in our 21st century textbooks of astrophysics. Astronomers today are the inheritors of the curiosity about the cosmos that motivated the stargazers of ancient Babylon, China and India. My guides to cosmology, ancient and modern, are Professor Sun Kwok, Dean of Science at Hong Kong University, and Dr. Tim Wotherspoon, a scientist and educator, also of the Faculty of Science at Hong Kong University. Now, Sun Kwok, I want to start with you because I know you're anxious to dispel the misconception that the ancients didn't understand anything about the universe and we understand it all. So what things did the ancients know about the universe. Oh, thank you very much, Douglas. Actually, the ancient care a lot about the uh, the sky and the universe because to them, it was everything. I mean, until the last couple hundred years, when we were beginning to be uh, overwhelmed by artificial lighting, I mean, the ancient farmers and uh, hunters they didn't have anything to do after the sun goes down. So the only entertainment they had uh, was either TV or video game was to go out and take their kids lie on the grass and watch the stars go by. And uh, they, by necessity, either as a farmer or a fisherman, they care a lot about the sky. They care a lot about uh, when the sun goes up, uh, where the sun goes down, when to harvest, and and, and so on. And they knew a lot. Now, our ancestors, unlike today's uh, modern uh, people, uh, almost to every person, the, uh, they knew that uh, the sun in general goes up somewhere in the east uh, every day, but they rise at a different time and at a different location every day. And actually, although we talk about the sun rising in the east, actually the sun only rises two days in a year that is exactly at the east. And they also knew that the, the moon rises at a different place, and also at about uh, is later every every day, about an hour later uh, every day, and and the stars, the stars go around the sky. I mean, they rise in the east, set in the rest in general, but they rise four minutes earlier every day. Hmm. All this means that the universe is regulated by very precise patterns. But these patterns are not simple. So we're talking about cosmology. We're talking about the the, the, big, the biggest picture there is, sure. the big picture. Um, so, Tim, what, can you tell us something about some of the earliest models that ancient people had of what the universe looked like, what, of its architecture? 
Uh, sure. So we can look at almost any culture that we know what their model was like. And they painted a picture where the earth was flat like a disc. And uh, as sunset, they would spend the night looking at the stars carving this circle in the sky. So they imagined that those stars were sitting on a dome that surrounded this flat disc. So if you've gone to the planetarium, you've seen this same idea because you sit underneath a big dome with all the stars mm. on it uh, sitting there on the flat, round floor. Uh, so pretty much every culture had this idea. Uh, of course, uh, later we would round the earth out. But before we can do that, uh, uh, I have to meet someone who comes from far away, right, from a different latitude. So, so it seems entirely sensible. Yes, absolutely. The earth is flat because with bumps in it. Because it looks flat to us. This is my experience of the uh, Earth. Yes. Otherwise, yeah. you would fall off. Yes, yes, the Earth seems flat to all of us. But yeah. the incredible thing is that the Greeks knew, you know, 2,500 years ago that the Earth was wrong. They're not, they're not finding that out by walking around. And, uh, so how did they know that? Well, by looking at the sky. That's the remarkable thing. Oh. I mean, mm -hmm. they see that the patterns of the movement of the sun is different. Depending on where you are, I mean, if mm -hmm. you are in Athens, uh, the sun rises in a different way or moves in a different way. But you, you go to other part of the world. I mean, the, the, the patterns are not the same, and there is no explanation for that unless the Earth is round. And therefore, as long as twenty five hundred years ago, they already knew the, uh, the Earth was round. Not only that, I mean, uh, 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 by uh, two hundred and thirty BC, there's a person called Eratosthenes. <laughs> it's a hard name to say, that he actually went out and measured the size of the Earth with incredible uh, accuracy, okay, within 1% of modern value. Now, because he knew that uh, uh, in the uh, coastal city uh, of Alexandria, the sun is never overhead. But if you go to southern Egypt, then the sun does becomes overhead. And he, by, on the same day, he measured the position or angle of the sun, and then from that measurement, he was able to derive the circumference or the radius of the Earth. So this cosmological knowledge is dependent on a pretty sophisticated mathematics already yes. in the Greeks. And yeah. I want to come, come back to that, okay. sorry, to interrupt you, because before we go there, and we're sort of moving already towards the scientific cosmology, there's the question of, of religion. There's a mystery to... Like, uh, as was mentioned before, the suns follow, uh, the sun and the moon follow regular patterns. Mm -hmm. They're different in different places. And I think what was the meaning behind those patterns captured a lot of imagination. And I think for answers, I think it was natural to look towards the supernatural mm -hmm. or even uh, towards astrology uh, it comes to mind. Because certainly they would be familiar with the planets and then they would need to come up with some reason why the harvest was bad this year or some reason why a great thing happened to them someday. So uh, as they were very well attuned to the cosmos, I think it definitely became associated with religion. But I think as we're moving forward, the relationship changes dramatically in time. If we look at uh, from the Greeks up until uh, the 1500s or so, I think there was uh, religion sort of kept astronomy back. And yet, it's perfectly understandable, isn't it, that if you see something which is mysterious but which appears to have design in it. Yes, yes I, I think it is very true. A lot of the uh, early uh, 
uh, astronomers uh, and the public were motivated by the desire to find out what is the message from God. I mean, mm, with yeah. this kind mm. of very precise patterns that has to be designed in it. Mm. But the design was such that it is so complicated, then the gods must, or God or gods must be trying to tell us something. That's and right. that is part of their motivation to find out what are the underlying uh, principles or the, the uh, hidden uh, message among the emotionally celestial objects because no one could imagine in, say, a couple thousand years ago that the sun and the moon were not created by a super super being. And uh, it is that drive to tie to uh, a higher being, and you, but using their own intellect to to figure it out that is uh, uh, driving the movement forward for, for ancient science. And this would be the, the beginnings of astrology, and you probably get angry when people <laughs> <laughs> can't distinguish between astrology and astrology. Astrology is the belief that the stars affect human life, right, human fate, right. yes, as yes. astronomy would yes, be the scientific. Yes. Yeah, that's not the unreasonable. I mean, mm. you know, after all, as we say, that the, the moon uh, affects the tides. I mean, if it affects the tides, why not affect people? Or that's the right. planets affect people. I mean, we have in modern English, that we have words like moonstruck or mm. lunatic. Yes, that yes. means that we have this kind of behavior because we are affected by the heavenly bodies. There are great figures that punctuate the history of, of astronomy. Um, tell us something about Ptolemy um, and and what's called the Ptolemaic system or the Ptolemaic universe. Sure. Uh, the Ptolemaic system, uh, Ptolemy observed the position of stars and moons very carefully and acquired a catalog of uh, where they would be found in the sky on wet nights. Mm-hmm. And this was done very well. And then he set out to create a sort of clockwork model that would describe, that would predict, that would enact that same dance, essentially. So you can think, think of a wind-up toy that does some complicated dance. He tried to set the planets and the sun and the stars all to, to just the right dance that they were performing in the sky. And uh, so this, this stayed around for a long time because he did a really good job, to be honest. Yes. But he's starting from the premise that the Earth is, is in the middle. Yeah, that's right? correct, yes. The geocentric. Yes, so. and that was a very successful model. I mean, the, uh, the 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 model that the Earth is at the center, but it's a sphere, okay, not yeah. uh, not a flat land, okay. and the stars are on an outer sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the model we now call the two sphere model is incredibly successful. I mean, they 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 even built a practical device called the armory sphere, whereas one can construct and put on your desk or your garden. And they, the device, by turning it the right way, they can predict uh, where the sun will rise. Uh, what time? At, at, at what time you rise yeah. on any place on Earth? Okay. Could you, could yes, yes. That's why you're so remarkable. You know, the uh, the uh, the the, the model, uh, Ptolemy's model, was so good that he can even predict the positions of the planets. You know, uh, within. Uh, Ten minutes of arc. I mean, uh, well into the uh, well into hundreds of years into the future. So it's not a uh, primitive uh, model yeah. at all. Yeah, it's a fabulous achievement, in fact. But also, that's it's based on, and I call this a geocentric model. It's based on the still mm-hmm. on the notion that the Earth is the center of everything, and human beings therefore are, mm-hmm. in a way, the masters mm-hmm. of the universe or the most important. Mm-hmm. 
um, creatures in in the system. Now, I'm sorry, I have to gallop forward many hundreds of years, but the Copernican system Mm. overturns that. Is that right? Uh, before we go that, let me go back a little bit and say that the, the, the ancient Greeks are quite uh, ingenious because not only they had this uh, uh, model of predicting the uh, motion of the star and the, and the sun and the planets, they can even calculate that how far was the moon, uh, which is a very large distance, uh, quite good accurately, quite, to quite good accuracy, and the size of the moon. Now, Aristarchus uh, tried to determine the size of the, uh, the distance to the sun, but the sun was too, so far away that he only could get an upper limit to it. <clears throat> Nevertheless, just to show that uh, ancient people, by doing some uh, very simple observations and making use of mathematics, which was, the, of course, the greatest uh, uh, tools that, that they had, they were able to learn a great deal that uh, 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 modern men tend to, tend to forget and didn't give them enough credit for. Okay, so now you, you wonder, actually, this system works so well, it explains things, it can also predict, this is what you want of a, of a scientific theory. Absolutely. So why did we need, and what happened? What went wrong? What caused the, that system to be overturned by a different theory? Yeah, so with Copernicus, uh, his model actually didn't add any value in terms of making better predictions whatsoever. And uh, at the, in his day, he put this note at the beginning of his book, uh, this is just a mathematical fancy. This is just a novelty. I'm not trying to say anything. Because he was suggesting, if you have the sun in the middle, that the earth moves. Mm. And, of course, when you gallop on a horse, you used gallop earlier, you feel the wind in your face. So if the earth is soaring through the cosmos, why don't we feel the earth in our face? That's a good question. Later with Galileo, he answered that question. Right. Uh, and so, Hang on. So Copernicus prefaces his theory by saying this is – just a kind of mathematical game. Is that because he was afraid of how people would react to the idea that the Earth is not the center of things? I think that's the easiest guess. I don't know yeah. why he did that, but yeah, I'm pretty right sure. Yes, yeah, uh, I, I think the uh, uh, Copernicus, like Tim said, had no really better predictive power, but he had an advantage which he is totally convinced himself that uh, his theory is better because he is more beautiful, more elegant. Sure. So you can explain things uh, uh, in a more uh, simpler way. I mean, so, so, so philosophically, uh, he was convinced that he was right, but of course he dare not say so because by, at that time the geocentric model is already built in totally to the Christian. Uh, yes. uh, the, 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 the religion already put the uh, heaven is beyond the fixed stars and mm-hmm. hell is uh, in the middle of the uh, uh, center of the earth. So the, the geocentric model is not just a scientific theory or astronomical theory. It is part of the total religion where the society <laughs> is built upon. So he was very concerned that if he say anything, there are implications saying that, oh, well, human beings are not really God's chosen people, mm. And, mm. and the stars are, and the sun are not built for our convenience, I mean, he would be in big trouble, which indeed what happened to Galileo. So uh, Galileo did a number of things uh, to help the heliocentric model. Uh, one thing in particular is... Uh, he, he showed – he countered some arguments. So there was an argument that if the earth was moving, when you threw an object high in the air, it would fall behind you. 
Good, yes. But Galileo's mechanics that he developed showed that it would move along with the Earth that was moving. So he could go up, uh, climb the tall mast of a ship that was uh, failing, sailing in a full wind, and he could drop a sack from the top of the mast, and it would fall at the base of the mast and okay. not below. The story that I think I know is Galileo and the telescope, that he's observing the moons of uh, Venus, Jupiter. He found new moons of Jupiter, mm. yes. Mm. Yeah, so, so basically uh, there are some uh, additions to the Copernicus theory. Mm. I mean, uh, finding moons to Jupiter, meaning that uh, uh, our moon is not unique in mm. a way. And also he found faces of Venus. Now, That's right. Yeah, so, so the, the Venus would never have face if we were going around the Earth. If it goes right. around the sun, it would have faces. Okay. So, so all these are his support, I mean, uh, observational support to the uh, uh, heliocentric theory. Good. This is a useful story for us because it reminds us both of the part that religion plays in this mm. story, but also the part that instruments, yes. that, mm. that mm. equipment, measuring and observing right. equipment plays in it too. Okay, moving you on again almost at the speed of light because <laughs> we have the whole history of the universe to cover. Um, so far, we're talking really about the, the solar system or, or mm-hmm. the geocentric system, and then the fixed stars mm-hmm. beyond that. But with when we enter into a Newtonian mm-hmm. universe, am I right? Suddenly, we're talking about a much, much, much bigger entity. Yes. Yeah, so, so I think uh, Douglas, you are absolutely correct. I mean, one of the uh, uh, major driving forces is uh, instrumentation. There's no uh, argue. Uh, arguing that uh, the invention of the telescope was the greatest thing that happened to uh, to our astronomical knowledge because in the past we rely on our naked eyes to see the heavens and now you can see a lot more with the telescope. And uh, going, taking it to present day, I mean, we are just building more and more and more telescopes that these things are not cheap. A modern telescope nowadays uh, would cost... Uh, you know, I mean, a couple billion U.S. dollars is not uncommon. Uh, currently, there are several telescopes being built at uh, this kind of cost. Uh, and you, you are wondering, why would government want to spend so much money in something that is seemingly uh, not useful? Yes, right. <laughs> and, and that, I think, really speaks a lot about our modern society in our pursuit of trying to uh, look, uh, understand the unknown. And, uh, and uh, all governments uh, around the world, I mean, rich and poor, they are chipping in uh, uh, at whatever scale to put telescopes on satellites, uh, building in a very large arrays of telescopes in Chile, on top of the high mountain top of Hawaii, and uh, in Australia. You know, all this is the uh, a human endeavor. Uh, these are the monuments that we could leave behind, like the cathedrals of Europe mm. uh, that was built uh, several hundred years ago. Very good. And I think that it's, it's interesting to reflect that the motive for these fabulous and, as you say, very expensive instruments is basically the same motive that caused these early human beings to look mm-hmm. up into the sky and try and understand what's going on. So what about... The, how, how do we think about the universe now? I mean, we, we think about... What about, for example, the size of the universe? How big is it? So uh, that's a good question. 
so in Newton's day, we just assumed that it went on and on and on without end. Right. Uh, but now we don't speak like that. Oh. All right. Uh, we speak more carefully now. Okay. Now we talk about an observable universe. So uh, going back to the very beginning of our cosmos and our understanding now, uh, we know everything was more dense because when we look outside, everything seems to be moving away from us. Mm-hmm. So if you press rewind on that, everything must was, was coming together. The universe is expanding. That's right. So but it must have expanded from a, an origin. Th- that's the logic we use, yes. Okay. All right. And then another thing is we know that there's things that are so far away that the light from there has not had time to come to us. So whatever's going on there, we we don't have any instrumentation that can tell us what's going on out there. We have no way of answering any scientific question about what's going on beyond what we can observe. So we speak more accurately of the observable universe, which has a boundary. We'd say, okay, this is... I don't remember the number. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, compared to the time of Newton, where yeah. we only uh, had the... Uh, uh, or, or even at those days of Copernicus, now our so observable universe is much much larger, both in terms of uh, uh, spatial scale or in uh, temporal scales. I mean, sure. we now talk about the universe is thirteen point seven billion years old, and the size of the universe, uh, as is uh, which things cannot travel faster than the speed of light, is thirteen point seven billion light years. Uh, in size, so so this is uh, much much larger than uh, what we were used to think in the past. Mm. And this brings us back again. It seems to me really to a religious question, mm. and that is, if the universe is what, thirteen billion mm. years old, what happened thirteen billion <laughs> years ago? Where did it come from? It must have come from somewhere. But right. how, how does an astronomer this is, At this that point, question? the scientists give up. <laughs> we well, say I, that this I, is not a scientific question. We, right. <laughs> I, I don't think we. I'm not going to allow you just to give up because there's a there's a big bang theory, right? Right. right yeah. So the, the notion that there's some mm. f- fantastically dense explosion mm. from which everything follows. You, you subscribe to that theory? Yes, I think almost <clears throat> everyone does. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Yeah. Uh, we're getting somewhere mm-hmm. now. Okay, <laughs> then you move back one yeah. space, go upstream a bit. Come on, you can't just say, "Well, we don't know." Well, uh, and the passage be- of time is not fixed, and so as you go back to the early universe, uh, time slows down a lot. So you oh, can't what, really what you keep mean? ticking back and back and back. So, what do, you, what do you mean time slows down? When we talk about history of universe, we speak in. A sort of logarithmic scale. So, what happened uh, in thousand years, or a thousand thousand years, or a thousand 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 years, right? And okay. so, when we're zooming back, we we can't really zoom back to zero. We can just keep zooming back closer and closer to zero. So that's what the scientific method allows us to do. So that's why we don't want to say what happened at minus one. I don't know. Oh, we have is, no access. It's very to unsatisfactory. <laughs> Both of you. All right, I think I, I have to let you off the hook because we've almost run out of time, actually. But uh, let me ask a different kind of question about origins, and that is: okay, we understand a lot 
now about the universe thanks to scientific inquiry. But there are enormous questions to which we don't have the answers. What are some of these questions? Well, you asked uh, different people, you probably take a different answer. For me, the most interesting question is uh, about extraterrestrial life. Mm. Because this is a question that we are within our reachable distance. Because up to the present time, the only forms of life are those which we have on Earth. Yes. But now we are going to Mars, we are reaching out uh, to the other parts of the solar system. And Douglas, as you know, I work on astrobiology and mm-hmm. astrochemistry. We have the building blocks of life. We are finding them all over the universe, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere, organics in our solar system being made by stars in large quantities, even organics back to 10 billion years ago in the early days of the universe. And it seems that the building blocks of life are everywhere. And it is... Uh, Totally not inconceivable that within 20, 30 years that some robot on the surface of Mars may be able to recover or uncover some forms of life that shows that life is not restricted to Earth. Now, the reason we are so well confident at, at the present time, because even on Earth, we are finding in the driest deserts in 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 a, in a, uh, Chile, in the very cold places of Antarctica, there is life everywhere. I mean, in places where we did used to think that life forms are possible. Mm-hmm. So now if they are in deserts of uh, Chile, now the, 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 the surface of Mars is not that different from deserts in Chile. Then why not there are some bacteria or whatever mm-hmm. on the surface of Mars? That's why we are so optimistic at the present time. Are you optimistic, Tim, about <coughs> solving this mystery or, or others? So, yeah, I think life uh, outside of our planet is definitely a very rich question. And uh, in the recent years, we've been able to develop instrumentation good enough to detect planets around distant stars, which is a very tricky problem to do. Uh, and, of course, we've learned now that the prominence of planets is very high and that the the conditions of our Earth exist elsewhere in the cosmos. And then, mm-hmm. as Sun already mentioned, the chemistry of our Earth is being developed everywhere in the cosmos. So there's no reason to think that that life shouldn't exist all throughout the cosmos. Yeah, going back to the day of Copernicus, so one of his uh, uh, revolutionary theory was that uh, Earth is actually a planet. The Earth is no different from the other five planets that if we in our solar system. Now, to, to people in those days, it was an incredible statement mm. because yeah. everyone at that time thought Earth is different, is unique. We are chosen people. We were put here for a purpose. Now we are now finding planets everywhere, not right. only within our solar system, but elsewhere. And they could be other lives that really change our pers- perspective of who we are. Fantastic. Okay, now in this program, time accelerates as we get towards <laughs> okay. the end, and we've, we've finished up our time, but I'd like to thank very warmly Professor Sam Kwok, Dr. Tim Wotherspoon, uh, for talking to us today, and thank you very much for listening.